Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Today we're going to be wrapping up uh, this, this section of the book of Romans in our series on the spiritual life by looking at uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. But before we look at those verses together, I want to just ask a, a hypothetical question to you and, and one that, that hopefully we can come to some consensus on the answer. Okay, and that question is this. What would it take to prevent Mark Cuban from getting a big gulp? What would it take to prevent Mark Cuban from getting a big gulp? Now, let me just add some context to that. Uh, you might know who Mark Cuban is, but if you don't, he has a net worth of $3 billion. He's the owner of the Dallas Mavericks and uh, also is a, a regular on the show Shark Tank, investing in other businesses. He's a person of considerable means. Not only that, but he is located in Dallas, Texas, which is the home of 7-Eleven, the corporate home of 7-Eleven. Now, let me ask you again, what would it take to prevent Mark Cuban from getting a big gulp? Now, the last time you went to 7-Eleven, what was the cost of a big gulp? Like 79 cents, right? Somebody with $3 billion, what would prevent them from getting a big gulp? Well, he probably could handle a price increase. If the big gulp went from 79 cents to $1.19, Mark Cuban could still get it. It would take something larger than that. Well, you might think, well, what if every 7-Eleven in the DFW metro closed down? You know what? It would still take something larger than that because Mark Cuban could send someone in a jet or in a car to a neighboring state. You realize there are 58,000 7-Elevens in the world. You might think, well, what if every 7-Eleven in the United States shut down tonight? What would... Maybe that's what it would take. Well, I don't think so because he would have some options. He might buy the franchise rights and build a 7-Eleven so that he could have his big goal. Or he might go overseas to one of the many locations around the world and get his big goal there. What would it take to prevent Mark Cuban from getting a big goal? Well, the answer to that hypothetical is it would take a whole lot, so much that we can't even imagine someone with as many resources at his disposal as Mark Cuban from getting a big gulp. It's hard for us to even fathom a world where Mark Cuban could not get a big gulp. Now, let me ask you, that's a hypothetical, silly story. But it directly relates to the end of Romans chapter 8. Because in Romans chapter 8, Paul has argued for the salvation that God has offered to men and women like you and me, the salvation that he has provided for us in Christ. And and even last week as we looked at this, we saw this progression of events in verses 29 and 30 where it says that for those that God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The same set of people he foreknew are the same set of people that he glorified. And the question is this, what would it prevent a sovereign God from saving those he calls? Well, it's easy for us to imagine 
that nothing could prevent Mark Cuban from getting his big gulp, but friends, God is far more powerful. Mark Cuban could die of a heart attack before the big gulp arrived, but we serve a living God, and his promises always come true. And for those who are in Christ, there can be absolute certainty that what God promised to do for us, to justify us and to bring us to glory, to forgive us our sins and to connect us with him forever, we can have absolute security and certainty that that is going to happen because God says it is so and because there is no one higher than him. Today we're going to look at verses 31 through 39 of Romans chapter 8 and we're going to see the incredible truth of the certainty of our salvation. And so let's look at these verses together. I want to read them for us, and then we'll back up and and see a couple of things about them um, as we spend and wrap up our our study of these verses together. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, says this. The Apostle Paul writes and says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long and are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, Paul writes, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, in those few verses, we're going to see a couple of things today. The first thing we're going to see is this. No matter what the question, Jesus is the answer. No matter what the question, Jesus is the answer. Now, Paul structures this section of Romans by asking a series of questions to drive home the point that our salvation is secure, that If God says we're forgiven, we're forgiven. If God says we're connected to him, we're connected to him. If God says nothing can get in the way of that, nothing can get in the way of that. He's going to prove that point by asking a series of questions to which we can see the logical conclusion is that nothing can separate us from God. Well, what are those questions that he asks? First question is found in in verse 31. He says, what then shall we say to these things? Well, what, what things? Well, the things of the gospel the things that Paul has been arguing for eight chapters, the fact that sinful people can be forgiven in Christ. He says, what are we to say to those things? It sounds like we're forgiven. It sounds like we're connected to God. Is that really true, Paul? And he says, well, what do we say to these things? He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? the first question that he asks. That's a good question. Let me ask you, who can be against you? Think think for a moment. You've got someone in mind that is against you. You've got something in mind that is against you. There's, There's Satan who is against us. 
He's the enemy of the people of God. There, there is sin, indwelling sin. We saw this in chapter 7 inside of us that is rebelling against God, that wants us to go in directions that we don't want to go. There are other people who do not have your best interest at heart. There are sinners around us who, who are against us. And so in, in the world in which there are all of these enemies, there's, there's sin and there's sinners and there's Satan, into a world where there's all these enemies, how is it that Paul can say, who can be against us? Well, he can say that because he also says, who is for us? And if God is for us, then who can be against us? You know, I have told you all before that I had the, the privilege of, of coaching uh, my, my son's basketball team over in the local uh, junior jammer league uh, this last year. And uh, you can imagine this statement, and this is a kind of a crude analogy, but maybe it helps to understand it. You know, we played a, a, some pretty good teams. As a matter of fact, we got beat a few times by some pretty good teams in that league. But you know what? Though there were adversaries in that league, just imagine if Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant played on our junior jammer nine-year-old basketball team. It would be safe to say if they played with us, if they are for us, who in this league could be against us? The, 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 the competition would be, would be none. It would be, it would be silly to even think about the competition of those other teams. And in the same way, if God is for us, friends, who could be against us? That doesn't mean that there won't be difficulty. It doesn't mean that there won't be suffering. It doesn't mean that life won't be hard. It means that there is no comparison between the things that we experience in this life and the God who is for us. In other words, Satan can make no accusation against us which stands up in eternity. Uh, this, this sinful world cannot destroy us in any way that God can't overcome it in eternity. The sin even that we commit is not something that can make us unforgivable or, or turn us into ashes that God can't make into something beautiful. See, the reality is if God is for us, who can be against us? And the fact that God is for us is, is something that is highlighted in the next question that, that Paul asks in verse 32. He says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I, I love this verse of Scripture. It, it's such a, a powerful verse. And, but really, this is, this is the question that Paul is asking here in this verse. The question he is asking in this verse is, you know, how will God not graciously give us all things? That's the question. How can we count on God to graciously give us all things? It's a reasonable question to ask. I mean, we might ask it this way. You know, okay, it's nice that God forgave us and gave us a respite from judgment for a while, but how do I know he's really going to give me glory in eternity? It's nice that God gives us a few things right now, but how do I know he's not going to change his mind later on? And the argument that Paul uses to show that God is for us, to show us that he will graciously give us all things, is anchored not just in an idea, it's anchored in a historical event. It's anchored in something that really happened in history that was a demonstration of God's love for us. It was a demonstration of what God wanted to do for us and what he was offering to us in Christ. He tells us what it is in the beginning of verse 32. How do we know that God loves us? We know that God loves us because he did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. 
It was God the Father who sent God the Son into the world. It was God the Father who sent God the Son to the cross so that the death that Jesus died might be a sufficient sacrifice to make the payment for our sins. It was God the Father who did not spare God the Son so that we might be connected to him. And when you think of that cost that God paid, a cost that was so high, how could we imagine God making such a high payment and yet then not following through on the benefits that that payment provides? Because the payment that God provided for your sin and for mine was the payment of Christ on the cross, a demonstration of his love. See, sometimes we can get confused, friends. Sometimes we can get confused and think that Jesus went to the cross because of the Jews or because of the Romans or because of something else. Make no mistake, Jesus went to the cross because of God's love. 19th century pastor Octavius Wilson or Winslow said this, He says, who delivered Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. We've seen repeatedly in the book of Romans that the the chief demonstration of God's love for us is not just in an idea. He didn't just send us a card that said, I love you, like many of you gave your mothers for Mother's Day last week. That would have been nice. The cards were nice. I'm not knocking the cards. I sent them also. But he did more than just send a card. He sent his son, and he gave him as a sacrifice for our sins. The wording of Romans 8, 32 reminds us of Genesis chapter 22, where Abraham brought his, his one, his only son, Isaac, for a sacrifice, and God intervened and provided a substitute so that Isaac could live. The wording is similar in that God said to Abraham, because you have not withheld your son, your only son, I've provided another. But God the Father, when it comes to our salvation, did not spare his son, his only son. But since no other substitute was possible, Jesus is the only one who could die for our sins. God the Father persisted in his plan and sent Jesus to the cross to die for you and me. How do we know that God is for us? We know that God is for us not because he sent us a card, but because he sent us a Savior who died for us. We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God loves us. And if he would send his son to die, we also can know that he will do what he's promised. He will graciously give us all things. next question that is, that is asked is, is in verse 33. These are all connected. But he says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Now, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Do you remember what, what Satan is called? He's called the accuser of the brethren. In, in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10, Satan is accusing the followers of Christ of sin. He's, he's pointing them out to God. What this verse is, is telling us not is that somebody doesn't want to accuse us of sin. It's that when they accuse us of sin, it doesn't stick. And why does it not stick? Not because there aren't a, a multitude of witnesses that could testify to our sinfulness, 
but because God says, no, 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 I justified that sin. God steps in the way so that no matter who brings the charge, God says, no, no, that sin was already taken care of. They've already been justified in Christ. They've already been forgiven. What an amazing promise. What an amazing truth. See, our, our, our worlds and our lives are, are full of people who could attest to our sinfulness. If you have a roommate or you have a family, they know you're a sinner because they live with you. If you have an office or you work a job, they know that you're a sinner. Friends, this is true in your life and this is true in my life. If I was going to have a trial of my sinfulness, you know who I would call to the stand? The people that work with me and the people who live with me. And I would ask them a few questions and they could tell you about my sin. The same is true for you. The question is not, are we sinners? Of course we're sinners. The question is not, is there someone who could bring a charge against us? Of course there are people who could bring a charge against us. The question is, will those charges stand in eternity? And the answer to that is absolutely not if we know Christ. If we know Christ, then he is the one who justifies us. He's the one who forgives us, who makes it possible for us to be connected with God forever in an inseparable kind of a way. Verse 34 goes into the next question and says this. He says, who is to condemn? Who is to condemn? Now, what do we know about this idea of, of condemnation from the book of, of Romans? We've seen very early on in this book, and we've repeated it several times in our study over the last year, but the wrath of God is revealed against all unrighteousness. Therefore, there is condemnation that is due all sinfulness, including the sin that you and I have committed. But because of what God has done through Christ, the condemnation that your sin and mine deserves has been satisfied in him. Paul, again, makes that clear. Again, this is not through a card. It's not through an idea. It's through a historical event where Christ goes to the cross and satisfies the wrath of God concerning our sin. Look at how it's described here. He says in verse 34, he says, who is to condemn? He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. The death that Christ died was the, a death that made payment for our sins. More than that, who was raised? The resurrection of Christ from the dead provides authenticity that Jesus was the Son of God, the sinless one, the one who was able to die in our place, that he was who he said he was. But furthermore, the resurrection of Christ also is a demonstration of the fact that God accepted Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin. The resurrection is, is like God's thumbs up moment where God says, you know what, the death that Christ died, that was sufficient. It was sufficient for all who would believe him to satisfy my condemnation concerning sin. It says, more than that, it was him who was raised, who was at the right hand of God interceding for us. Jesus didn't raise and retire. He, he, he raised to heaven, and now he is interceding for us. In other words, consistently and continually, Jesus is reminding God the Father that his death, that God accepted, is sufficient to pay the penalty for our sins. How can we say that there is no condemnation towards us? We can say that with confidence because of what God has done for us in Christ. Through this series of questions, Paul is arguing for the security that you and I can have in our relationship with Christ. 
Now, when you think about God the Father, what do you think about? What is his attitude or his countenance towards you? What these verses tell us is that for those of us who are in Christ, God the Father is for us. You believe that God is for you. If you know Christ, God is for you. Not only that, but he loves you. And he desires to give you all of the things that he has promised. And not only that, but he will defend you against accusation. And he has poured out his condemnation on another instead of you. All of those things are what God has done for you if you are in Christ. And I I say those things today because those are things that every one of us in this room should want. At the core of who we are, our our, our souls should leap at the thought of God the Father doing those things for us, thinking about us in those ways, intervening on our behalf. We should leap at that idea and that opportunity. Doesn't your heart move a little bit when you hear those things? Here's the thing. The key for those to be true of us is found if we are in Christ. And if you have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, know that that is how God views you. He is for you. He loves you. He wants to give you all things. He has satisfied his condemnation. He rebukes every charge against you. That That is God's attitude towards you. But if you're here today and you do not know Christ as your Savior, you've never placed your faith and your trust in him, then then, then know this. There's a God in heaven who at this point in history is against sin and has condemnation for your sin and that there is judgment that is waiting. But also know this if you don't know Christ. Know that that can change in a moment. The same God who saved those of us who know Christ by his grace is the same God who offers you that kind of a relationship with God by his grace also. And you can begin a relationship with Christ and have a relationship with God that is for you, that wants to give you all things in a loving relationship, and that can begin merely by placing your faith and your trust in Christ in this moment. And if you know Christ, then God is for us. If you're here today and you've never placed your faith and trust in Christ, I I just ask as we go along today, it doesn't have to happen in, in a moment with fireworks and fanfare, but even where you sit, you can be praying and trusting Christ with your heart. And in that moment, God forgives you and is for you. The first thing we see is that no matter the question, Jesus is the answer. But the second thing we see is this. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We, we see that here beginning in verse 35 and, and following. It's really the last of the questions that Paul is going to ask to drive home the point that our salvation is secure. He says in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? I love that phrase. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? He, he doesn't just say, who will separate us from the proximity of Christ? Who will, who will separate? In other words, sometimes we think that in eternity, Jesus will tolerate us. And so we, we think about just being in the proximity of Jesus. And if that's all he gave us, that would be great. But that's not what the verse says, is it? It says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? There's an intimacy there. 
There's a real relationship there. And the point that Paul is making is that it is impossible for whom God is for, for for them to be separated from the love of Christ. And then he he moves into a a series of, of statements where he describes some things that we might think would separate us from the love of Christ. He says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. An Old Testament quotation there. The idea in those verses, I believe, is that Paul is saying is, you know, even for the things that we suffer in this life because of our faith in Christ, Keep in mind, in the Roman Empire where Paul was writing and the people in Rome, they were experiencing persecution for their faith. Shortly after they received this letter, some of the Roman Christians would be lit on fire to to light up the streets at the amusement of the Emperor Nero. It was an awful time and great persecution among the Christians. But Paul writes and says, you know, even if you go through those kinds of persecutions and trials, know that you are not separated from the love of Christ. As a matter of fact, it's a demonstration that you are with him because the world rejected Christ. When we go through persecution for our faith, it's a reminder that we are connected to him as well. We are intimately tied to the love of Christ and nothing can separate us, no persecution that is endured. And he says in, in, in verse 37, I love this phrase, he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, I, I love this phrase, more than conquerors. Um, because the, the word that is actually used there is, 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 is the word hyper-conqueror in the original language, hyper-conqueror. I, I don't know if you ever remember the, the time when Walmart had these stores called hyper-marts. Do you remember this? There were four or five of them in the United States. When we moved to Dallas, uh, there was a hyper-mart that was built in South Arlington where we lived. And uh, the very first Walmart Kimberly and I went to as a married couple was the Hypermart. It's, hard, it's all downhill from there. Um, but we went to this Hypermart early on. And this is what a Hypermart was. A Hypermart was a large store that had lots of everything. It was a precursor to the super Walmarts that we have around our town seemingly on every corner now, right? Um, that's what a Hypermart was. It was a, it was a massive market of some sort. And the idea here is that in Christ... We are hyper-conquerors. We are massive conquerors. Over all things, we have victory if we are in Christ. That means that over every persecution, ultimately, though they may kill our bodies, our souls live on. Over every cancer, though it may take our bodies, our souls live on. We had the, the privilege yesterday of remembering the life of John Miller, a longtime Wildwood member. And one of the, the, the joys of that moment as we think about John's presence in the Lord right now was just thinking about how John is more than a conqueror. His cancer did not defeat him. It might take his body, but his soul lives on in the presence of God forever. In Christ, we are more than conquerors. There is nothing that can separate us from Christ. In Christ, no matter what we endure, no matter what we go through, we can be a conqueror because Christ has made it possible for us to be with him in eternity. Nothing can touch that. Verse 38 and 39, he begins to paint the cosmos and touch both extremes of a number of circumstances and things to let us know that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. He says, I'm sure that neither death nor life, 
neither angels, angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see there the Apostle Paul using every comparison at his disposal to let us know that there is nothing out there, friends, nothing, nothing in the spiritual world, nothing in the physical world that can prevent us from being united with God through the love of Christ. Not a thing can separate us from him. And all of that ultimately happens because of God's commitment to us. You know, many times we we think about this in the connection to the love of Christ, and we think of that as our responsibility, that ultimately it's our decision, it's our faith, it's our uh, righteousness that we might be be able to produce. But I think the, the heart behind this This section in this phrase of Romans 8 is to let us know that it is God's commitment to us that makes all of this possible. God has made a commitment to us, and he says nothing will get in the way of that commitment. You know, there's an idea called the perseverance of the saints. It's It's a doctrine in Christianity that talks about how all true believers will persevere and make it to glory, make it to heaven. But John Stott, as he describes this idea of the perseverance of the saints, I love what he says. He says, our confidence is not in our love for him, which is frail, fickle, and faltering, but in his love for us, which is steadfast, faithful, and persevering. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints needs to be renamed. It is the doctrine of the perseverance of God with the saints. Friends, we have a God who has committed us. He has moved in full time for all time to take us into glory with him. Because of that, we can have a security in our salvation. We don't have to live out our Christian lives hoping that it works out in the end. But if we know Christ, based on what we see here today in Romans 8, we can be certain of our salvation because of God's perseverance with us and nothing can stand in the way of that. Now, over the last several weeks, several months, really, we've been walking through the book of Romans, and, and I've loved being in this book. This is the end of the book, but this is a, the end of a significant section of the book. We're going to spend more time in the book of Romans this summer and even again in, in the fall as we go all the way through to chapter 16. Um, but this is an appropriate time for us to reflect a bit on, on why this book is so precious to us and why these verses are so precious to us. And it's because, really, in the book of Romans, what we have is we have questions from this world answered by by God, answered in Christ. Questions that we have answered in Christ. So what are some of those questions? Well, one of the questions that we have, let's just review, is the the question of being alone. We, We have a fear of being alone. And yet, what do we see in Romans 8, 37 and 38? We see that we can never be separated from the love of Christ. If we know Christ, our fears of loneliness are answered and that Christ is always with us. Then the next thing we think about, a fear that we have is a fear of of death or dealing with death. We we struggle with that, right? We have loved ones that that pass away and we we, we think about our mortality in times like that and and other. We, We think about this fear of death and yet what has God done for us in Christ? In Romans chapter 8 verse 11, he talks about The same power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in us. The idea is that the resurrection that Christ had is a precursor for the life that God will give to those who are in Christ. 
We think about other questions that we have, a question of hopelessness. This world can, can try to rob us of our hope, and yet what do we see in Romans 8, 24 and 25, but that we can have a hope in things that are unseen. God is, is offering us hope in this life. Other things that God is, is, is offering to us is, is a need for grace. We, we, we need grace in our, in our life. We need God to reach out and do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Well, what has God done for us in Christ? But he has given us something that we do not deserve and that we cannot earn. Romans 6.23 lets us know that the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. This, this world gives us suffering. There are groaning that goes on in us and in the world around us. But in Romans 8.28, we've seen that God can take all the groaning of this world and he can work it together to make something beautiful according to his purposes. What a, what a gift that we have in Christ of a sovereign God. We have an old life that is predisposed to, to old patterns of behavior, and yet in Christ what we see is that we have a new life. In Christ, we, we have a new opportunity. We're a new man. We're a new woman identified with Christ. In our old life, we were shackled by sin. We had no choice but to sin, but in Christ, we've been set free from that sin and given a new opportunity to follow and obey God. And not only that, but we, we can struggle, struggle with, with our sin and the shame of that sin, and yet in Christ, we find that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, what we have walked through over the last couple of months is a treasure chest of God's Word that have answered some of the deepest questions that we have in this life. And there's no better way for us to end this idea than to spend some time singing and, and making praise and worship to God. And we're going to do so by singing a song that, that echoes many of these ideas from the book of Romans about our identity in Christ, but also does so with, with an interesting turn of a phrase that has a story behind it. Now, I want to share that story. See, in, in St. Mary's, Georgia, there is a, a graveyard in St. Mary's, Georgia, a small town. And, and on that, that, in that graveyard, there's one particular tombstone that had a, has a very interesting uh, epitaph on it. And this is, this is what it says. It says, Here rests what was mortal of Samuel Burr, age 42. In search of health, far from his endeared home, death arrested his progress on the 2nd of April, 1831. Quietly, he fell asleep in the Christian hope of immortality and glory forever. You know, some songwriters were walking through that cemetery one day, and they saw that, that phrase that was, that was listed there, and they, they thought about how death, death arrested his progress. But then they thought even further about how not only did, did death arrest his progress, but think about this, Christ arrested death for Samuel Burr. Because he was in Christ, that was not the end. He had an eternal life ahead of him. And in Christ, if, if we know him, then we also have an eternal life ahead of us based on what he has done. And so would you please now join us as we stand and we conclude this section of God's word by singing about the life that we have in him. <laughs> 